0: You're listening to Historically Speaking from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and I'm joined by former fraternity president and former fraternity historian, Kay Larson. Hi, Kylie. How are you today? Hello, Kay. I am good. I'm excited to be back on the
1: Historically Speaking train with you again. Me too. And today's question is a good one. Someone has asked us when alumni associations came into being. And they followed up with Did our founders plan for ways in which Kappas could gather together to promote Kappa friendships after a member's collegiate days ended?
0: I know that I usually take us on a tangent much later (laughs) in the recording, but I think it's important to start early on with this one. We have to talk about pronunciation.
1: Oh, good. I wanted to start with that as well. And I'm glad we're on the same page.
0: We often are. There are three primary sources for this discussion on pronunciation. One, my middle school and high school Latin teacher, Mrs. Abernathy from Honeyway Falls, New York. Two, your Kappa experience as a longtime member and as the fraternity president from 1988 to 1992, and then Fran Beck, PhD, the Fraternity Archivist and Historian from Pi Beta Phi.
1: Those are rather eclectic
0: sources. <laughs> <laughs> no, and because we can't write these things out in a podcast, I won't go into deep detail. Just know that if you hear me or other Kappas who still think of their Latin teachers fondly, use the word alumni, which ends in A-E to describe a group of several women graduates, We are following those classical Latin pronunciations that were hammered into our brains by our Latin teachers. A-E is pronounced like I in eyeball. Same if you hear us pronounce alumni, which ends in an I, to describe a group of men and women graduates. It's because we learned that in Latin, the long I at the end of the word is pronounced like the E in knee. Now, if you follow Fran Beck's blog or Facebook page, you know that she embraces the more modern pronunciation of these words and says "alumni" ends in A-E as "alumni" and then alumni ends in I as alumni, like eyeball. At least eight years ago, we agreed to disagree. So don't worry, we're still friends, but what about you?
1: Well, I too learned the pronunciations of alumni with the a e in my ninth grade Latin class. So always said alumni, the classic Latin way. However, through the years, as I worked with other NPC presidents who used the modern Greek, alumni, I too began to use the modern alumni. Now I find I use both pronunciations interchangeably. How's that for a non-definitive answer? However, both pronunciations convey the same meaning, a group of several women graduates. It's much easier to talk about one woman, alumna.
0: Agreed, and sometimes I'll even say alumna members to avoid the whole kerfuffle. Basically, listeners, if you hear Kay and I talking about it, it doesn't matter how it's pronounced, we're more than likely talking about Kappas who are out of school. All right,
1: carry on friends. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's get back to the question. When did alumni associations come into being? And did our founders plan for ways in which campus would stay connected after college? Well, you know me, we have to go back to the documents. Our founders had very few but we know they sent a constitution to beta, gamma, delta, and epsilon chapters when those chapters started. So they had some things written down. The earliest form of the constitution does not mention classes of membership, but as amended by the chapter vote in June, 1874, honorary members were defined. So it became necessary to mention active members. The conventions of 1876 and 1878 made no change in this classification, but when the Constitution was rewritten at the convention of 1881, it provided that members should be of three grades, active, honorary, and silent. Silent. You have to
0: wonder if some members out of college had been giving unwelcome advice to those
1: who were still in college. Perhaps, but the definition of a silent member corrects that notion. It was written that silent members are those young ladies who have not completed a college course and who no longer pay the fees and perform the duties of the fraternity. Alumni, And silent members may become active by paying the fees and performing the duties of the fraternity, unless their chapter deems fit to excuse them from fees and duties.
0: So alumna members were recognized after all. And we found that when the Constitution was amended at the Convention of 1882, the rather unfortunate term silent was changed. We now had four grades of membership active, alumna, associate, and honorary. And we've discussed honorary memberships before, but they didn't last long. The last honorary member was initiated in 1884, and that type of membership was abolished in 1896. Honorary members were usually women who were quite famous and often older than the college women.
1: That's right. Beyond the Constitution and until the Golden Key was first published in 1882, source material regarding alumni is meager. Editorials in the key during 1889 and 90 call frequent attention to the desirability of alumni associations or chapters as they were then called. Not until 1892, however, when meetings of alumni were held in Chicago and New York, was the movement successful? Even then, the Organization of Alumni Associations received no encouragement from the active membership until the Grand Council meeting in 1901. By this time, the value of such associations was recognized and it was voted that the Organization of Alumni should be urged and encouraged and that the direction of such associations be given to the fraternity council members deputies. At the convention of 1902, a whole day was given to the alumni and called Alumni Day. The spirited discussion created by the interesting program that day provided to be the popular feature of that convention. You mentioned
0: the early meetings of alumni living in Chicago in 1892. That group was called a chapter and was very successful for some time. It had the responsibility for and was in charge of the Kappa Corner at the World's Fair and also Kappa's part in the Pan Thugatarian Convention held there in 1893. The early association, or at the time as it was called, chapter, was given the next chapter name in order. Thus, the Chicago Association was listed as Beta Theta. That was super confusing to me when I happened across that old charter in the archives, since I'm most familiar with Beta Theta in Oklahoma. I bet. These alumni in that Beta Theta chapter in Chicago had the status of active members and had to conform to many regulations as to meetings, reports, dues, etc., Since they found this burden difficult, Beta Theta surrendered its charter at the 1894 convention. Following the convention of 1896, the fraternity standing rules provided for the formation of alumni associations of at least 12 members who should meet at least four times a year and elect a secretary who would be responsible for fraternity documents. Such an association had the right to send, at its own expense, a delegate who would have the privilege of speaking on the floor, but no vote at convention.
1: While alumna activity was being fostered at home, a very spontaneous expression of Kappa interest was shown abroad. Seven Kappas found each other in Berlin, Germany, and enjoyed pleasant meetings. They sent a group picture to the key in June 1892, a greeting from the Berlin chapter. This was the first alumni organization established by a women's fraternity in a foreign country.
0: Can you imagine what those early alumni would think if they knew they could open up a directory or type their location in the website? or call headquarters and immediately be connected with a group of wonderful
1: kappas somewhere near them? And that first alumna chapter, Beta Theta, would be surprised to learn some of our associations now number in hundreds. And some of our associations are primarily virtual alumni associations, like the Golden Key Association, whose members work to educate our members about and rescue our membership pin and other Kappa insignia from the online auctions, estate sales, or pawn shops.
0: Or the Stars and Stripes Alumni
1: Association for Kappas in the military. Oh my, yes. It really is difficult, more than 150 years after our founding, to realize what the fraternity was like just a few years after that event before the place of the alumna was recognized either by the alumni or the active chapters. So important is the part played now by alumni that everyone agrees active chapters plus alumni equal fraternity.
0: Isn't that the truth? And it reminds me of my favorite quote from former fraternity president, the late Fran Alexander, who said, I have spent my entire life as an alumna making up for my deficiencies as an active.
1: That really is the best quote. Well, thank you, Kylie, for helping me to answer this question. It was probably hard for those young women in 1870 to imagine keeping in touch with their sisters long after they were in school together. But my life as an alumna sure has meant the world to me. I'm the same. Thank you, Kay. And
0: listeners, if you have another question you'd like us to answer, you can email us at archives at kkg.org. Bye. You've been listening to Historically Speaking, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum, the Stewart House, is in Monmouth, Illinois can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Initial research was done by former fraternity president and former fraternity historian Kay Smith-Larson from Beta Pi Chapter at the University of Washington. And production is done by me, Kylie Tower Smith, from Omicron Deuteron Chapter at Simpson College, and the Archivist and Museum Director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.